I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, this is Tim Shaughnessy, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. I want to say thank you for checking us out, and uh, today's going to be a really good episode. I'm very excited about it. We have our brother, Ryan Denton, who is a co-host here on Semper Reformanda Radio. He is going to be joining us today, and uh, he is bringing on two people that he is discipling, and uh, we're going to be talking to them in just a minute. But first, let me give Ryan an opportunity to say hello. And Ryan, let me just ask, what's going on with you? Uh, hi, Tim. Yeah, it's good to be on the show. Um, you know, just uh, in a sense, the same old, same old over here. We've been evangelizing at UTEP uh, three or four days a week. We're uh, right now facing some pushback from the administration. Uh, seeing a lot of good, good, good fruit really from uh, from the actual evangelism though on the on the campus as far as students go and things like that. I think that's it, brother. As far as uh, as far as things, you know, um, what we're doing at UTEP and uh, evangelism wise. Well, that's outstanding, and I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, so I want to encourage our listeners to go there to check it out. Uh, we really, really appreciate the work that Ryan does, and I can't emphasize that enough. I think that when you look at the Bible and you look at the way the disciples went out and preached and they were they were fierce and they were bold and they were faithful, I think of Ryan. So, Ryan, it's always a pleasure to have you here. I'm grateful at the fact that you are going to become a co-host or you are a co-host. I'm very much looking forward to that. I love the fact that you're in our own city. I wish that you wouldn't leave so much, but I understand why you do it. Uh, and that's just for that's just for my own sake. I wish I had more time to fellowship with you. Amen. Um, so Ryan, you've got two guys here and uh, you know, it's funny. I know Uriel. I just was introduced to Uriel. I hope I'm not butchering his name. What's your last name, Uriel? Santiana. Santiana. Okay, well, that's easier. I'll just call you Mr. Santiana. And there's a, another gentleman who I've not been introduced to. So first, let me uh, ask you guys, can you guys just go ahead and introduce yourselves? Um, yeah, uh, I'm Nathan Santiana, uh, brother of Uriel. And uh, well, I'm a student at UTEP. And uh, for about a year or so, uh, I've been preaching alongside Ryan at UTEP. 
um, actually met him when he was there preaching at first, and I just introduced myself to him, and, and since then I've had the opportunity to to preach alongside with him, thank God. Oh, um, and uh, my name is Uriel Santiana, I'm brothers with uh, Nathan, and uh, I met Ryan, like, I met Ryan a little towards the, the fall of, uh, of 2017, and uh, it was my first year in UTEP, and I haven't had the opportunity to preach yet at UTEP, but, you know, I hope in the future that God gives me the, the courage and the strength to actually, you know, st- stand up there and proclaim the gospel, you know, just like my fellow brothers here. Yeah, and, and, and you know, this is the fruit of open-air preaching, really, because if we weren't doing what we're doing, there's no way we would have been able to meet these guys. And um, they've, they've been coming over to the house every week, you know, on a weekly basis now. And, and uh, I took uh, Nathan up to UNM with me last week. And so, I mean, the, the, the way the Lord's been moving in these guys has been such a tremendous blessing for me and really for all the guys that have gotten to know these guys, too. I mean, these, they're, they're, you know, they're good learners. Um, they're hungry for the word. And so it makes makes it a lot easier to, to, to do this kind of stuff. But, you know, by God's grace, man, we met, you know, through preaching. And so we praise God for that. Amen. And uh, yeah, that is a that is a testimony of of what you're doing that. Uh, and we, we know that this, this this is all from the Lord. And uh, so, gentlemen, let me let me say, first of all, that I rejoice at hearing of your faith and I am very grateful for you. And, you know, I pray for people like you that you would be emboldened. Um, what do you You know, all it really takes, man, is just to put to death the fear of man and you know, we'll, we'll definitely be praying for you for the time when you do step out. Um, and once again, I'm, I'm very grateful that you guys are here. I'm very grateful that we get to partner with you. And, and in whatever way that we can encourage you, we definitely want to do that. Um, so let's go ahead and get started with today's uh, topic. We are going to be talking about apologetics. This is going to be right up your alley. This is, uh, I think, something that you guys can definitely use. This is going to be... Uh, sort of a conversational style of teaching. Um, but let me ask you guys, are you all familiar with presuppositional apologetics? I'm going to say I don't have a really good understanding of it, honestly. Okay, that's, that's yeah, that's not, a pro- that's not a problem at all. Let's just go ahead and get started then. Uh, so basically apologetics is defending the faith. And because you guys are putting yourselves out there in an evangelistic style that is going to put you in contact with people who are not believers. And because you both are college students, it's really important that you guys get a firm grasp on not only the essentials of the Christian faith, but also what the Christian worldview is and get a good grasp on apologetics. And so today we're going to be covering apologetics. This is going to be an introductory class to apologetics. And for today's scripture, I want to read out of Colossians 2, verses 1 through 8. In Paul's writing, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, 
As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's a couple of things in this text that I want to draw from. And the first thing that I want to point out is that Paul has not seen these brothers face to face, these brothers and sisters. The church of Colossae was not started by Paul. As a matter of fact, it's believed that a man by the name of Epaphras was the one who started the church. Apparently, he sat under the teachings of Paul while Paul was in Ephesus, and then he went and started this church in his hometown. And so I thought this was fitting for us today, and I think that this reflects Paul's heart. And, you know, I, I really want to submit that we should all have that, that same struggle for one another to, to build each other up in the faith. And we see that, you know, there's a couple of things here that Paul says. He says he, he desires that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And so he desires to, to encourage them and to bring them together in love and unity so that they may reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Jesus. And that's the same thing that I would want for you guys. I would want you to have that assurance that is in Christ Jesus. And many times we, we sometimes tend to doubt when we hear arguments against the faith or when we hear certain uh, objections that we can't seem to answer or simply when we can't reconcile our experience with the Bible. And I think that it's important to also recognize that Paul is uh, writing this letter while he is in prison. He has no access to these churches. Uh, and it is likely uh, that these local churches are facing some form of heresy. Now, I was reading over Clark's material. He has a book on Colossians, but Clark does not seem to, he, he seems to reject what is commonly thought of as the heresy that is facing the Colossian church. And the heresy was uh, that most people tend to think of facing this church was an early form of Gnosticism. Now, I don't think that we can establish that Gnosticism is what was plaguing this church, but whatever the heresy was, uh, it's clear that Paul intends to deal a death blow to it. And certainly, once Gnosticism did come along and was fully developed, uh, this certainly would have dealt with that view. So Gnosticism was a wasn't a separate religion. Rather, it was a philosophy that blended with components of existing religions. Apparently, elements of Judaism and Christianity were combined with Gnostic beliefs soon after the church began. Certainly, the heretical teachings that Paul com combats in his letter to the Colossians. So, uh, some people believe that he was uh, battling an early form of Gnosticism. The term Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnosticism was a complex religious philosophy which taught that salvation could only be achieved through secret knowledge. And here we see that Paul intends to deal a death blow to this heresy by informing them that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have a definitive statement from the mind of God on the subject of knowledge. Here we have the heart of Christian epistemology. And epistemology is the branch of philosophy which deals with and tries to answer the question, how do you know? 
we notice two things in this verse. First, it says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I want you guys to just think about that. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It doesn't say some. It doesn't just say the knowledge of uh, religion. It says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you really meditate on that and you really dig down deep, you'll find that the Bible is not silent on any issue. The Bible gives us a complete and comprehensive worldview. The second thing I want to point out is that it says that they are hidden in Christ. Now, what does this mean? This means that you can't turn on the Discovery Channel and find something that man has discovered that is truth that is apart from God. This means that you cannot search out the wisdom and knowledge yourself in any area of life, not just that which is considered to be religious. The fact that all knowledge comes from the triune God is supported by other passages of Scripture. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Proverbs we see that the fool is the one who ultimately says there is no God. In Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. John 1.9, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says that he was the light of the world. It says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus Christ is that light, and he enlightens the minds of men. We cannot know anything apart from him. The consistent message of the Bible is that knowledge and wisdom come from God alone. Paul tells them his motive in telling them this, in telling them that it is in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He later says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now I'll just make a little note here that philosophy is not the problem. What we are advocating for is a philosophy that is built on Christ. We want to notice that it says, according to human tradition, and it says not to be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So that is what we need to avoid. Philosophy is just the love of wisdom, and all knowledge and wisdom come from God. So what these people in the first century were facing is not unlike anything that we face today. Um, I want to, for a minute, go to Genesis and point something out, that the lie is always presented as knowledge. You guys are in an institution of academia, an institution which seeks to deliver knowledge, and much of that knowledge is really against the Bible, and it is against the Christian worldview, and ultimately, it's not knowledge at all. And as we go through this series, we're going to tackle such subjects as logic, morality, and we're going to see that the Christian worldview really does stand out against these other views. So in Genesis, we'll read Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, this being the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When we believe the lie, we give intellectual assent to false propositions. It is therefore imperative that we recognize that true knowledge comes only from God, lest we be deluded with plausible arguments and taken captive by human philosophy and empty deceit. 
Today, we face an onslaught of claims that contradict the Bible. If you are in the public school system, then you no doubt have been presented with knowledge claims that simply cannot be reconciled with the Christian worldview, as derived from Scripture. The task of Christian apologetics, then, is to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Uh, and that last verse was uh, Jude 3. This requires you to, quote, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3.15, and to, quote, destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10.15. It is to provide a rational justification for the faith and to refute arguments made against the Christian worldview, which is defined entirely and exclusively by the Bible. Apologetics, then, is nothing more than the intellectual defense of the truth of propositional revelation. Unfortunately, there is much confusion in today's church regarding the topic of Christian apologetics. Some Christians disparage and refrain from the task of apologetics because they view it as argumentative and confrontational. Often they cite their own personal experience or shortcomings as the basis for their position. We hear arguments like, quote, we should be trying to win people, not trying to win arguments. Rather than encouraging apologetics, they attack it out of false piety. We are supposed to argue, but not be argumentative. We are supposed to contend, but not be contentious. We are supposed to confront people with the truth without being confrontational. We are to cast down arguments raised against the knowledge of Christ. But it is important to recognize that no argument is ever detached from a worldview. Every argument is grounded in the presuppositions that make up a person's worldview. Therefore, we must learn to think in terms of worldviews. So... What is a worldview? A worldview is a system of beliefs or ideas that determine how a person views the world. And you guys can sort of think of this as uh, when you put on glasses, where somebody puts on red sunglasses and they see the world as red. And so if you're looking at the world through an atheistic lens, you're going to see everything through the, the presuppositions of atheism. So a worldview is a set of beliefs about the various issues of life. All persons have worldviews. They are inescapable. One's worldview will determine how he views the entirety of life, the decisions he makes, why he does what he does, and so forth. All worldviews have presuppositions which govern their system of belief. These presuppositions function as axioms from which all decisions are deduced. So presuppositions function as axioms because presuppositions by definition are assumptions, and an axiom is an assumption that you cannot prove. There are two points to keep in mind here. First, all persons have a worldview. Second, all worldviews have presuppositions. It was Clark who said that first principles are laid down dogmatically which cannot be proven, and that's what an axiom is. An axiom is a first principle. In order to illustrate this for you, that one cannot avoid presuppositions, I've devised a little test for you guys. Were you guys able to look at the, the test? I think there are eight questions on it. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go ahead and go through some of those, and uh, feel free to answer. Question one, how do you know that your senses are reliable? Yeah, so... Um, uh, I guess I would say how how can how can our senses be reliable? That that just reminds me of uh, empiricism, where they say that uh, what's real is what you can sense, right, through your five senses. So I mean, it it would all depend. Like, how how can I 
how can I prove with my senses a thought? How can, you know, I, um, I prove to you something that you cannot see. So I would say that, um, our senses are reliable to a point to what we can see, to, we can hear, touch, taste. But other than that, we can't really trust our senses for a lot of things that are, um, that are, I would say spiritual. Yeah. So the point here is, I think what you said is that your senses, your senses will fail you. And so how do you know that your senses are reliable? Well, some might choose to appeal to their reasoning. So the next question is, how do you know that your reasoning is valid? So how do you know that your reasoning is valid and sound? Um, in, in, uh, in the Christian uh, like worldview, how do we know that our reasoning is sound? Well, our reasoning, we would basically call what we've learned in the Bible where our reasoning is based in Christ and what we've, what we've learned from his word, which is all truth. So, I mean, if, if we're in, if we're speaking humanly, our reasoning can be off. It's not, it's not all there, you know, where we make mistakes like crazy. I mean, even in Christ, we make mistakes, but knowing the Bible and stuff, our reasoning can be a little clearer or it, it won't be a, as uh, like full of flaws if we base it on, on the word of Christ. Well, so this is what I'd add is that you can know that your reasoning is valid if you uh, follow the, the rules of logical inference. Um, and we know that the laws of logic are derived from scripture. And so I think, it, you know, something that you said was pretty important that you can know that your reasoning is valid if your reasoning um, is, uh, is in line with the Word of God. And so the next question is, how do you know that your memory is accurate? Well, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast sometimes. So it just depends, you know. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let's say you take a memory test, right? And you get the results back and you're looking at the paper. And the paper says that you scored a, a perfect on this memory test. Let's say there's 10 questions. And you, it says the paper says you got a, a, a perfect score. Mm. Would you would you say that that's you know that proves it? Well, I would assume statistically, yeah. I, I would say yeah. Well, let me ask let me ask you this: Do you remember taking the test? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No. Is it necessary for you to remember taking the test? It absolutely is. Um, so. How do you know? I have a little uh, meme. You guys can't see it, but it's uh, how do you know that your memory is reliable? And the person answers, because I couldn't know anything if it wasn't reliable. So then the other person says, so you know that your memory is reliable because in order to know that your memory is reliable, you must first have a reliable memory. Um, all right. So question number four, how do you know that the future will be like the past? Well, I mean, I just want to start by saying, you know, uh, I hear a lot that history repeats itself. And, uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, that's true. You know, um, sometimes we tend to not learn from past mistakes and we redo them many times. Mm -hmm. Uh, but like, but let's, let's talk about something more concrete. Uh, let's talk about, uh, gravity. So if you guys were to hold something out, um, let's say, do you guys have iPhones or, uh, do you guys have cell phones? Yeah. Samsung. All right, so let's let's say you were to take your phone and you were to hold that over a swimming pool. Would you drop it? Uh, no, no, I would not. This, this phone because because you're assuming already that the future will be like the past, 
And you know from somebody's past experience that when these phones get wet, they break. Yeah. So how do you know that the future will be like the past? How do you know that, hey, you know what? Maybe this is the one shot in a trillion where I'm going to drop my phone and it's going to be fine. Because of evidence, I would think. Evidence that people display. Um, you look you look at a, an, an article you know, where it says this phone is definitely not waterproof. So I think it's based on our, our, on our experiences and what – and on people's experience too. I, I think that we feed a lot of, a lot off of that. So like let's say your parent tells you, uh, mijo, don't try that because it will end like this. And for the most part, it, you'll, you'll do it anyways. And when it ends exactly like your parents said, you're like, I wish I could, I wish I would have never, I would have never done that. So I think that, um, well that, yeah, let me, let me jump on that. I think that's a, you know, that's a, a good answer. Um, so what you're saying then is, uh, you know, that the future will be like the past based off of past experience. Yes. Okay. To say that, you know, that the future will be like the past based off of past experience is to basically beg the question. The question is, how do you know that it'll be like the past? And you're saying because of past experience. And so you're just appealing to the past. Um, so the next question is, um, okay, we're going to skip number five just for the sake of time. Uh, number six, is it possible to show that the law of non-contradiction or the law of contradiction is false? First of all, do you guys know what the law of contradiction stipulates? Kind of, yes. I did a little research on this. Uh, the law of contradiction from what I read is uh, there can be two arguments and if both – and if you can't really settle anything, then both then both are false. Both, are, both uh, sides of the argument are fals falsified. Well, not necessarily because contraries can both be false. Um, in, in a contradiction, one of them has to be true. Yes. Uh, but contraries are the ones that both can actually be false. And so the law of contradiction is basically this, that A cannot be A and not A in the same place, same time, and in the same sense. And it's really important for Christians to understand what this law is because we hear all the time that the Bible uh, is full of contradictions. And then the people that we're hearing that from don't actually know what constitutes a contradiction. And so just to give you a brief example, in the book of Genesis, Satan is depicted as a, uh, as a serpent. In the book of Revelation, he's a dragon. And people will say, well, you know, that's a contradiction. Well, the depiction of Satan is not given uh, with reference to the same time or in the same context. And so it's not a contradiction at all. We know that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. And so Satan can possess the, the body of a serpent and he can manifest himself or be uh, depicted as a, as a dragon or something else. Uh, so it's important that Christians understand what the law of non-contradiction is. And the, the question is, is it possible to show that the law of non-contradiction is, is false? And uh, I'll give you the answer. It's no. Uh, number seven, uh, can one of you guys read number seven? Uh, number seven is, is it possible to prove the law of contradiction true? If yes, then please provide an argument. If no, then please explain why. Okay. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Let's go. You got me, Tim. I don't. That's fine. Yeah. So, no, it's not possible to prove that the law of contradiction is true. It's not, it's not possible to prove that the law of contradiction is false. And the reason why is because you have to use the law of non-contradiction in your argument. You have to assume that it's already true. So first, it's not possible to prove that the law of non-contradiction is false because 
the person who's arguing that the law of non-contradiction is false actually has to already assume that the law of non-contradiction is true. Here's, here's how you can illustrate this, and it's really simple to illustrate. All you have to do, guys, is, is this. Just contradict them. When they say that the law of non-contradiction is false, you just say, well, the law of contradiction is true then. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Wait, why are you arguing with me? I'm contradicting you. They're already having to assume that the law of non-contradiction is true because they, in order to make their argument rational, they have to assume that, that it's true from the outset. Now, question number eight is, can you prove any of these things? And the, the truth is, is that you can't prove them. You can't prove that the law of contradiction is true because you are, you have to assume that it's true from the outset. And, uh, that's called begging the question if you try to prove it. If you try to establish this as a, as a logical proof or as a proof, then you're not going to get anywhere because you can't prove what you have to first assume. That's the, the fallacy of begging the question. So all of this is to illustrate a point that everybody has something that, that they have to assume to be true from the outset. The atheist who wants to argue against Christianity well, he, he's going to have to pull from his memory from some article that he read or something that he saw on Nat Geo or some documentary on uh, the Discovery Channel. He's going to have to assume that the reliability of his memory. He's not going to be able to prove the reliability of his memory. Every worldview has assumptions. Every worldview has a starting point. We cannot get anywhere unless we first begin. So the question is, why are presuppositions unavoidable? And this, this is basically what we've set out to do. The reason why is that every philosophy must start somewhere, for otherwise it could not begin. To require a demonstration or proof of a first principle is to misunderstand the whole procedure. And I'm quoting from Clark here. You either fall into an infinite regress or a circle. And so the question is, how do you know that A is true? Well, I know that A is true because of B. How do you know that B is true? You can use a little bit of a Socratic dialogue with the person where you just ask questions to uh, find the breaking point in their argument. Where do you, how do you know that B is true? Well, because of C. Well, how do you know that C is true? Well, I can prove that C is true because of D. And you fall into an infinite regress or you fall into a first principle. But the first principle must be assumed. So the question now is, what do you think is the Christian starting point or the Christian axiom? Um, I believe it's got to be the Bible. You're absolutely right. The answer is scripture or the Bible. And here's another question. What do you think are the presuppositions which define the Christian worldview? And I'll give you the answer. It is propositional revelation, the propositions of scripture. So here we want to advocate a worldview that is called scripturalism. And I know that you guys were talking about sola scriptura, and this falls in line perfectly with the principle of sola scriptura. So here we want to advocate scripturalism, which is a worldview and life view. It is a system of belief in which the word of God is foundational in the entirety of one's philosophical and theological dealings. This system of thought averes that Christians should never try to combine secular and Christian notions. Rather, all thoughts are to be brought captive to the Word of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, which is a part of the mind of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Our minds must be transformed to, quote, prove 
what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? That's Romans uh, 12.2. In other words, our thoughts must progressively become God's thoughts, as it says in Isaiah 50, uh, 55, verse 6 through 9, which divine thoughts are only known by the word of God. So not only must we learn to think in terms of worldviews, but we must also learn to think in a way that is consistent and faithful with the Christian worldview. What defines the Christian worldview? It is the Word of God. This means that we must learn to think in light of God's Word. As the psalmist says in Psalms 119, 104-105, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The Bible says we are to render every thought captive to the Lordship of Christ. Jesus says to sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth in John 17, 17. And sanctification begins with the changing of the mind. Unfortunately, many Christians are unable to defend the Christian faith because they have not considered how intellectually disobedient they are, and they have foolishly combined secular notions with Christian notions. Every time this happens, the Christian worldview is subverted, and if left unchecked, it will ultimately be rejected. Depending on the issues being confronted, this can be dangerous to varying degrees. Certainly, some issues are weightier than others. And to illustrate this, I want to go to Genesis 3 again, and this time we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Beginning in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And I'll just note right here that Eve got the word of the Lord wrong. God never said you shall not touch it. It's important that we actually know the word of, of the Lord. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. So Adam was with her. Adam had the word of God. He should have confronted that serpent. And here we have really the first sin is Adam's for failing to cover his wife. So how is it possible? Let me ask you guys this. How is it possible that Eve saw that the tree was good for food? Well, the answer is that she failed to look at the tree and its fruit in the light of God's word. You see, we do this all the time. How is it possible that people and some professing Christians can look at issues like homosexuality, abortion, socialism, and see these things as good? One may look at socialism, and just as Eve saw that the tree was good for food, they see that socialism is good for society. Learning to think in terms of worldviews and recognizing our need to think in a way that is consistent with the Christian worldview will allow us to be better equipped to deal with attacks. Apologetics is not limited to formalized arguments against Christianity, but also includes the subtle attacks brought in through false ideologies. And for this, I want to go ahead and play a clip for you guys from uh, Dr. Hugh Ross. And I want 
I, I want you guys to ask yourself this. Is he arguing in a way that is consistent with the Christian worldview that is derived exclusively from scriptures? Or has he adopted another presupposition, another assumption that's gone unargued? So let me, uh, let me go ahead and play this. I'm going to turn up the volume. The question is not whether or not it's a big bang, but really I think what divides us is uh, how long has the universe been expanding? And uh, I can suggest uh, seven easy tests or a dozen more that are more complicated, but I think the two that are the most compelling is that stars and planets are impossible unless the universe has been expanding for billions of years. If it's only thousands, all you get is hydrogen gas. If it's trillions, all you get are black holes. And moreover, you can only get stable orbits of planets uh, about stars and stars about the centers of galaxies if the universe has been expanding continually okay. uh, for billions of years. Before Ken answers here. Okay, so I, I would submit, and I want, I want to point this out to our listeners, that what Dr. Hugh Ross has done is he has just argued in a way that is inconsistent with the Christian worldview, uh, which, again, I would submit is derived entirely and exclusively by the Bible. And how has he done this? Dr. Hugh Ross here is essentially saying that, that if the universe was 6,000 years old, that that wouldn't be enough time for us to have the galaxies and the stars that we see. And I would submit to our listeners that he has very subtly imported the philosophical view of naturalism into a supernatural event. All supernatural events are historical, and the account of creation is a literal, historical, supernatural event. And we have to, I mean, if, if the other guy was not arguing from, from evidentialism, but was arguing from Scripture, he could have easily pointed to Acts 26, verse 8, where Paul asks, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You see, they were saying essentially the same thing that Dr. Hugh Ross is saying. It would have been impossible for this thing to have happened. And Paul's reply is, Why should it be thought a thing incredible or a thing impossible that God can do this? Why should it be thought a thing impossible for God to have created everything in six literal days? As it says in Genesis, how long does it take to ferment wine? I want to ask our listeners that. You see, John chapter 2, we can go to Jesus' first miracle. John chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. And Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, what was in there was water, and then he just simply said, draw it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and notice that it says, now become wine. Well, it takes an incredibly long time to actually ferment wine, and this happened instantaneously. God does not need a significant amount of time to really do anything, and so what Hugh Ross is doing is he is appealing to naturalism that the galaxies and stars formed through naturalistic processes, the same ones that we see today. And we can point back to Scripture and say that is not necessarily how miracles, how supernatural events work. So here are two more examples of people trying to combine secular and Christian notions. These were a couple of memes that were circulating Facebook and the Internet during the election. And it's a, a blasphemous picture of Jesus pointing and giving a thumbs up, and it says, you've been worshiping a socialist Jew for many years. 
time to vote for one. Hashtag Bernie Sanders. The next one says, Obama is not a foreign-born, brown-skinned, anti-war socialist who gives away free health care. You're thinking of Jesus. And both of these were circulating because what have Christians done? They've combined secular notions with Christian notions. They're thinking in a way that is inconsistent with the Christian worldview. The Bible tells us to give to those who are in need, but it does not advocate that we should use the government to force others to give up their personal services and goods to others on our behalf. This is theft. Socialism creates an economy of theft, and it is catastrophic for a nation. We have multiple examples. Look at Venezuela. Free health care is theft. And what is usually included in their definition of health care is not really health care at all. It includes things like abortion, where they murder the child that is in the womb. One of the roles of government is to protect its citizens. And it is the role of the government to protect the unborn. So, These people are acting in a way that is inconsistent with the Christian worldview. The first step in apologetics is to understand the Christian worldview, to understand that everybody operates on presuppositions, that everybody has assumptions, that everybody has something that they ultimately cannot prove. And we, therefore, have to be astute in looking for those unargued philosophical assumptions which are slipped into arguments either by the Christian who is trying to defend the Christian worldview, because Dr. Hugh Ross is ultimately trying to defend the Christian worldview, but he is appealing to other things like science. So at this point, this is all we're going to talk about tonight. This is the first step in our series on apologetics. All right, to our listeners, we will check you guys next week. God bless, and uh, we'll see you next time.